My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. So you've been journeying through the Bible. My family and I, we've been journeying with you as we've been attending your services online. And we're excited to see you because I'll tell you right now, you're so much prettier now in person than you are online. Uh, it's really, really great. You know, they say the camera adds 10 pounds. So you all look thin and fit and healthy. So I want you to know how excited we are to be in person with you. And we're going to jump into the book of Judges. It's a very very interesting book. I'm sure as you've read it, you thought, what do I do with this thing, right? And I'm excited for us to jump into it, but what I want to do is I kind of want to frame our discussion with a couple questions. And I think you'll see as I ask you these questions, you're going to see that I'm moving your thoughts in a direction. But I want you to do this. I want you to kind of maybe slow your mind a little bit. And as you reflect on these questions, I don't want you to answer them out loud because you'll incriminate yourself, okay? So don't do that. I want you to just reflect for a moment and be honest with yourself as I ask these questions. All right, that's this first question here. If, if you've ever felt like you, you would have been better if your surroundings were better, have you ever felt like I would be better, I would have made better choices, I wouldn't have gone down that path? Have you ever felt that if your surroundings were better, you would have been better. If the group around you, the people around you, the family you were born in, right, the school that you attended, the job that you're currently at, the relationships that you find yourself in, if your surroundings were better, you would have been better. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe a second question. If you were, if you were to tell your story, say to a complete stranger today, and as you told your story of your life experiences, your actions, your decisions, the things that have happened to you, as you were kind of illustrating your life to this point, would you describe yourself more as a victim in that story or as a villain in that story? Where would you put yourself? And maybe you say, well, you know what, Paul, I would be a little balanced. Well, where, where would the scales tilt? Would it be more, I, I'm a victim of what's happened to me, or I'm the villain, the one who's kind of the bad guy in the story? Where would you be? I think just with two questions, you kind of see where I'm going here a little bit, but let, let me ask you two more. 
If you were just to make a list, just write it out of all the problems you've ever experienced in your life, just list them out, whether they be people or situations or circumstances. If you were to list out all of your problems, how many would be from other people and how many would be from you? Where would the, where would the scale tip there? Okay, last question. If you were to list the top five most dangerous things in your life, top five most dangerous either people, situations, if you were to list the top five, would you be on that list as a danger to yourself? Let me just be open. Let me just be a little bit vulnerable with you and tell you, let me tell you how I answered those questions when I was younger. If you were to ask me, Paul, would you be better if your surroundings were better? Absolutely, I would have been better if my surroundings were better. If you were to say, Paul, if you're going to tell your story and and just kind of write out to us your life to this point, as you told that story, Paul, would you be the victim or would you be the villain? Oh, I would definitely be the victim, the one who was hurt, the one who was offended, the one who really shares the, the lion's share of the problems in my life would not be me. No, it would be others outside of me. In fact, that third question, if I were to list out my problems, man, the scale would tip way in this favor. It's those people outside of me. All my problems are there. If I was going to list the top five most dangerous things in my life, I wouldn't make the top five. I wouldn't make the top 50, if I was honest. You see, I grew up in a home of kind of disorder I grew up in a home with drug abuse. And there's a lot of problems outside. My parents were manic depressive and bipolar, which meant our home life wasn't the most emotionally stable. I remember as a 10-year-old talking with my dad, trying to counsel him on his suicidal thoughts. I remember the drug abuse in our home taking just a catastrophic high when my dad overdosed on heroin when I was 12 years old. And so my home life was one of disorder. It was in kind of disarray. It wasn't stable. It wasn't a a firm place to kind of grow up in health. And school really wasn't an escape for me. I didn't like going to school because I'm severely dyslexic. And so I struggled so much in school. So embarrassed at just my lack of ability to gain knowledge, to learn like everybody else. When I was in eighth grade, I had a second grade reading level. According to the California State Standardizing Test, I was in one of the lowest percentiles you could possibly score on that test. And one of my teachers actually told me that. So I would go into school just in fear. What if there's a substitute teacher? And she doesn't know that she's not supposed to call on Paul because Paul's the kid who's just going to embarrass himself. He's just going to stutter. He's just going to struggle. He's not even going to be able to get a whole sentence out without missing so many words. I didn't find that school was a safe place. I had a lot of problems outside. And I think if we could admit, it is so much easier to look out of the windows in our life and see the problems that are out there, right? Than it is to look in the mirror and see the problems that are in here. I did not consider myself a danger to myself. I did not consider myself a problem. And I think what we're seeing in the book of Judges is it's going to totally turn our perspective. 
Because in the book of Judges, what we're going to see is the biggest problem that Israel has is not outside of them, but it's inside of them. And I want to encourage you, and I want to do this very gently because I don't want to dismiss any of the pain that you've ever experienced in your life. Because I know when you look out, I know for some of you, when you look out the window, you see abuse, you see betrayal, you see divorce, you see a lot of brokenness. And I don't want to diminish those experiences. I don't want you to feel like I'm making light of the harm that has happened in your life and the hurt that you've experienced. I don't. Those things grieve the heart of God. They're awful and they're evil. But inside, friend, there's only one person who can inflict infinite harm to you, and that's you. There's only one person who can hurt you more than anyone can hurt you, and that's you. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Judges. So I want you to open to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And here's what I think we're going to see. Uh, one of the main ideas of the book of Judges, and what I'm going to say is the big idea of our message today, is this. We are the damsel in distress in the story of God, but we're also the dragon. Yes, we're the damsel in distress. We need rescue. There are things outside of us that can hurt us. We are the victim, if you will. We need rescue, but we're also the dragon. The problem is in here. It's deep-seated. It's deeply rooted. It's infectious. It's insidious. And it has our lives. Let me show you this. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And as we navigate through these passages, let's just ask one question of the text as we walk through it. Where is the problem? Where is the problem? Is it inside of Israel or is it outside of Israel? Is it looking through the window or is it looking at the mirror? Where is the problem? And here's what I think we're going to see. We're going to see an angel is going to point that the problem is inside. We're going to see that the author of Judges doesn't leave this question in a place of confusion, but answers it. And he says the problem is inside. And then God himself is going to say that the problem is inside. Let me show you this. Judges chapter 2. Let's start with verse 1. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. Stop right there. This angel could be also be a messenger. It depends on how you translate the Hebrew there. Is speaking on behalf of God. And God is saying, you remember what I've done for you. He's kind of giving the people of Israel a history lesson. I brought you out of Egypt. You were in slavery. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land, a place where you could prosper, a place where you could flourish. I did all of these things for you. I kept my covenant with you. I was faithful with you. But how did the people respond? Look at what the angel says. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. Now, to us, that may not be a big deal. What is he talking about altars? Okay, maybe it's just their place of worship. It's their practices of worship, their actions. But this is where we see that there are big problems outside of Israel. Really big problems. See, in the ancient Near East, the Canaanites, one of their practices in worship was to sacrifice their children on those altars. They were murdering their kids in worship to their gods. Did they have problems outside? Oh, absolutely. Were there dangerous people in the land? Oh, absolutely. Were there people that could hurt them? Oh, absolutely. Was there any reason to look out the window and say, that is bad? Absolutely. But then the angel switches focus. 
because he sees a problem. Yes, he mentions the one outside, but look at where he focuses. Let's read the last part of verse 2. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in our land. And they will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And when the angel Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. They called the place Bacham, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. What does the angel say? Where is the problem? Remember, that's our question. Is the problem inside or is it outside? Is it right here or is it out there? What's the angel's focus? Israel, you missed it. Yes, there are problems out here, but you missed it. You didn't obey my commands. And now you're in trouble. The problem is inside. Yes, they're the damsel in distress. They need rescue. They need help. There's threats outside, but they're the dragon as well. Look how the author of Judges does the same exact thing. He's going to bring up, yes, things look good, right? The people see it. They start weeping. They start making sacrifices. God, we're sorry. Now, if you read the book of Judges and you're already ahead a little bit, you know this sorry is incredibly shallow. It does not last very long. Oh, there is a lot of emotion here. They name the place weeping. They make sacrifices to the Lord, which are incredibly violent things when you read the Old Testament. I mean, they are killing animals. They're wailing before the Lord. They're weeping. But that sorrow quickly shows itself to not be true. That sadness over their situation shows to be short-lived. Because really, they're not turning their life over to God. They're just saying, hey, I'm in trouble. All right, look at how the author makes this very clear. Jump to verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, after this generation died, this is the generation of Joshua. Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done. Things looked good when Joshua was there, probably 30, 40 years, but then they forgot. How could they forget? How could these people forget? They had professionals to teach them. Leviticus chapter 10 tells the priests it's their job to teach the people everything that God has done for the people, to remind them of the exodus, to remind them of God's provision in the wilderness, to remind them of the commands of God. They had these professionals, these, these priests, these professional clergy who did nothing else but teach, did nothing else but give sacrifices, do nothing else but hear the sins of the people. They had professionals, yet they forgot. They had elaborate festivals. God put all these little dates on the calendar. I want you to party here. I want you to party here. I want you to party here. And all these parties are going to be in remembrance of the great work that I've done. Well, apparently they forgot the calendar. They didn't listen to the professionals or the professionals didn't speak. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says the family is a place where we'll pass on the events that God has done in our life. Remind our children that they will flourish only under the hand of God. Well, maybe the family fell apart. We don't know how they forgot. We just know that they forgot. And the author of Judges is just going to show, here's how bad it got. All right, jump down. After Joshua dies, we're going to jump down to verse 12. It says, They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them and 
they angered the Lord. Jump down to verse 17. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges. God would raise up these leaders, but they prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away. Now this phrase right here is really interesting. How quickly they turned away. This phrase is used another time in the Bible, prior to this one. And as an English reader, we kind of miss it sometimes. It just seems like a simple little adverb, no big deal, quickly. But this Hebrew phrase is used another time. And another great sin of the people of God. This phrase is used when it's talking about the golden calf, the idolatry that the people had right after they got delivered. I mean, it was incredible. God came in and really crushed the world power of the day in Egypt. In the ancient Near Eastern world, Egypt was strong. Uh, Egypt was the one that was the most powerful. And the incredible part of the story of Exodus is the people of Israel defeated the Egyptians without lifting a sword, without yielding a shield, without taking up a bow or a javelin or whatever they used back then. They did none of that. Who came in and fought the fight? God did. Through these miraculous plagues, he broke the back of the Egyptians. He delivered the people of Israel. And then on their way out, the Israelites did this crazy thing. They went to their old masters and they said, hey, can I have your gold? Imagine that. You have this slave in the dirt, in the mud, making bricks, building pyramids, maybe cleaning the stuff in the house of the Egyptians, whatever. And all those things they used to polish as a slave, they now say, hey, I like that shiny thing. Can I have that? And the scriptures tell us that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians just by asking. Because the Egyptians were scared. Not of Israel's army, they had none. But by Israel's God. God broke the back of the Egyptians, pulled the Israelites out of Egypt, brought them through miraculously the wilderness, right? And at this moment when Israel is about to be on the way to worship this God who delivered them, they forget him. How does that happen? Ah, if we're honest, we do the same thing, don't we? Don't we? How quickly we can turn. Maybe you've made promises to God when you're in trouble, right? You feel just the pressure cooker of life and you're suffering and you're in trouble and you're in sorrow. You're in this valley moment and you make all of these pledges, all of these promises. God, if you get me out of this, I'll, I'll put the bottle away. I won't come back to it. Or God, if you get me out of this, I'll put the needle down. I'll never come back to it. God, if you get me out of this, I'll, I'll break up with that girl. God, if you get me out of this, I'll stop hanging around with those guys who keep getting me in trouble. God, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, I'll this, I'll this, I'll this, and I'll this. And what happens? God delivers us, and what do we do? What did I say again? What did I commit myself to again? That's what's being described here. Where is the problem? The author of Judges sees it. It's inside. Where is the dragon? He's not outside the camp. He's inside the camp. And he is devouring us. And our promises are shallow. Our tears are shallow. Our weeping is shallow. It's not real. We're just in trouble. All right, look at the next verse. I think it's very interesting how the author picks up, why does God deliver? Why would God ever rescue them? And look at what he says, and then think of what he doesn't say. All right, verse 18. He said, yet Israel, I'm in verse 17, and I'll read 2, 18. 
Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turn away from the path of their ancestors who walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and he rescued the people from the enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took, what's that word? Pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. Notice what it says. What moved the heart of God? Was it the people's repentance? Was it the people's confession? Was it the people's brokenness? Was it their humility? What does it say? No, God just had pity on them. And this is the pattern we see throughout the book of Judges. That even when they cry out, it's not because they want to turn their life over. They're just in pain. And they don't like pain. And they don't like the suffering. And we can find ourselves in that, right? We've made promises to God's commitments to God that we don't keep. And yet God is so gracious to us that even when he knows it's shallow, at times he delivers, hoping the best from us. And maybe that's what God did here. He hoped the best for Israel. But here's what happened. The problem just kept getting worse. Look down, verse 19. But when the judges died, the people turned away to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. Do you see this? This sets it up. A downward spiral over and over and over and over again. You know, it reminds me of a student in my student ministry when I was a youth pastor. Wonderful, awesome kid. Knucklehead. Right? which is great because he belonged in my youth group because I was the knucklehead, right? And some awesome, great, wonderful youth pastor put up with knucklehead Paul uh, and allowed him to be there. Even when I broke stuff in church and said words I shouldn't say, and this kid was a knucklehead. I love that kid. He had his addictions. He had his problems, right? He, home he grew up in and practices of his teenage years, was drinking, smoking, doing those things, you know, it's just weed, it's not, it's not a big deal, right? It's just a couple of drinks, it's not a big deal. Just about a year ago, died of a fentanyl overdose, right? We don't attack problems, what happens, they get worse. We ignore them and the spiral just continues downward and downward and downward. This is happening right here before us. And you know it, maybe you know it and you feel it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you're here and you thought your last rock bottom was your final rock bottom, but it's not, and now you're deeper than you've ever been before. And that dragon is bigger than it's ever been before, and its claws are around your neck, and you can feel it. And you're in this sense of hopelessness, of who will ever free me from this heart of death? Who will ever deliver me from this? You see how deep the problem is? It's not out there. That's the distraction. Out the window is the distraction. Out the window is where we get lost. That Yeah, it's true. There's something there that's awful. It's evil. Yes, there are people in the land doing incredibly just, just terrible things. But inside, the dragon breathes fire. And its claws are clenching down on our windpipe. And we are about to lose air. And we are distracted with the things out there. But we are burning in here. This is what God is telling. This is what the author is telling them. Guys, the biggest problem, it's inside. It's not outside. And I think the clincher comes 
when God says it directly. All right, look at verse 20. The angel said it, he pointed out, he saw it. The problem was inside, not outside. The author of Judges makes it very clear as he describes the problem. The, 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 the uh, sorrow is, is shallow. They quickly turn. The problem's getting worse. And then God makes it abundantly clear that we can't blame the outside for the problems we have inside. All right, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, And so the Lord burned in anger against Israel, and he said, I don't know if it's through a prophet, maybe through the angel, we don't know, but right now we're just introduced to direct speech from God. So I'm going to say this is God speaking audibly to his people. He did it in the past. I think he's doing it right here. And look what God says. Very interesting words. I'm going to read a little bit here, but listen to this again with that question of mine. Is the problem inside or is it outside? Verse 20. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he said, because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. Look at verse 23. This is why the Lord left the nations. Who put them there? Who placed them there? It's very clear who left them there. God did. The Lord left those nations in place, and he did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left in the land. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. These are the people, these people were left to test Israel. Who put those people there? God did. Can Israel say it's their fault? The problem is outside. They're the ones. No, they can't say that. Why? Because God put them there. They can't blame their problem on the outside world because God put that outside world there. Now, as, as a modern reader, we may say, well, what is going on here? Why, why would God continue to allow the presence of temptation? If they weren't tempted, they wouldn't have disobeyed. But see, there's a confusion there in our thinking Temptation may explain our disobedience, but it doesn't excuse our disobedience. And really, temptation is what? A showcase for obedience. Jesus Christ himself was tempted, led into the place of a desert, a place of need. And you know who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit. Can we blame him? No. Can we blame God? No. Is the problem outside? No. The problem is where? It's inside. And man, this plays out through the rest of the book over and over and over again. It's not a book of hope. It's really a book of failure. Chapter 3 all the way to chapter 16, God just continues to show how Israel's leaders, they're great, but really they're, they're villains. And they only get worse and worse and worse. We get a great leader like Gideon has this wonderful underdog victory that you may know, even if you're not familiar with the Bible and familiar with church, you may even know the story of Gideon, even if you don't know him by name, but you have this wonderful, amazing victory that a very small army beat a very big army, but this underdog then turns into an idolater, and he leads the people to worship a false god. You have Jephthah, who has this mighty victory, another leader, another judge, a mighty man of valor. He wins this victory, and then what do you know what he does? He sacrifices his daughter. Then you get Samson, right? Maybe you know that one. Big, strong, burly, kind of looks like somebody else, not me, (laughs) right? Some lady in the back was like moving her glasses. Did he say himself, (laughs) right? 
You have this great Samson, right? Big, mighty man, strong man, many battles he wins. But he also involves himself with many prostitutes. It just spirals downward and downward and downward. And then we get to chapter 17 to chapter 21. And I would say probably the most explicit passage in the entirety of Scripture. And there's some doozies in the Bible. In fact, if you have young ones, I would skip that part until they're a little bit more mature. Because it is, it is bad. Basically, a sex crime leads to a civil war and we have tribes killing tribes. What does judge, judges teach us? Problems right here. But now there's a glimmer of hope. And it's in one verse. And it's the last verse of this book. Go to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. There's a glimmer of hope. Look at this with me. It says this. In those days, Israel had no king for over about 400 years. They had leaders, but no king. Then look at the next phrase that comes after. It's not something that surprises us because we've read the book of Judges. We've seen the downward spiral. We've seen the dragon really take over. We've seen their internal problem get worse and worse and worse and worse. Everybody has pointed it out. Everybody sees it except for the people. And said in those times, they had no king. All the people did what seemed, or whatever seemed right in their eyes. This almost makes us think, is this kind of a cause and effect? Maybe if we had a king, he could conquer our heart. He could solve the problem, not just protect us from the outside threat, but the inside threat. We need a king. There's another glimmer of hope in the book of Judges. That oftentimes when God talks about raising up a leader, he'll say this phrase, the Spirit filled those leaders. We see that phrase with Gideon, we see it with Jephthah, we see it with Samson. These leaders would be filled by God's Spirit and they'd have victory. But that wouldn't continue because of their disobedience and their lack of character. Imagine if we had a king who was filled with the Spirit at all times. Maybe he could vanquish that dragon. We need a spirit-filled king to conquer the dragon. If we zoom out from the book of Judges, who is that king? Christ is that king. Right in the New Testament, when Jesus is doing his public ministry, one of the main uh, topics of his ministry was what? The kingdom of God and how he was the one to bring it to us. He's that king. Jesus, we see oftentimes when he's doing his wonderful miracles, it talks about the spirit accompanying Jesus in these mighty works. We learn later from the New Testament and even from the gospel writers himself that Jesus existed in eternity past. He wasn't just a man, but he was God. And as God, he existed with the third member of the Trinity, the spirit in eternity past. He had fellowship with the spirit. He saw the accompany of the spirit in his works. And then he promised the spirit to all of his followers as they would have faith in him. He would fill them with the spirit. We have a spirit filled king who conquers what? This. Because Jesus speaks about new birth and he speaks about new life. Jesus is that spirit filled king who can finally slay the dragon, who can finally free us from our sin. See, but here's the hard part. As we cheer for the hero, we all want to be in that moment on the stands when triumph happens. But this is the hardest part, I think, of Christianity. Is first you have to see where the dragon is before you see where that hero is. And that's hard. 
It's much easier to look out there and say, oh, they need Jesus. It's hard to look in that mirror and say, I need Jesus. I need the king to conquer. I need the king to come in. I can't slay this thing from within. That's the hardest step. To admit in a very humble state, I'm not the hero of my story. Yes, there's a sense in which I'm the victim, I'm the damsel in distress, but I'm the dragon. I'm the villain. That is hard to admit, but it is essential for us to see. And if you have courage enough to stare in that mirror, to keep your gaze right in there, you'll see it. And you can find rescue from the only person who can inflict infinite harm to you. You. You're the only one who can keep yourself from the forgiveness of God. You're the only one who can keep yourself in a place where the dragon dominates your life. You're the only one who can push away transformation because God is eager to give it to you. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you put this practically just into place in your life? As a follower of Jesus Christ, your, your sins have been forgiven. You, you, you are being transformed, but you're still a work in progress, right? You're, you're still growing. And I think what is true for us is that the biggest fight we still have to fight is still in here. It's still this dragon. And that means... We need to confess more than we complain. And look, there's times to complain. There's times we need to look out and say, that's not right. That's evil. That's wrong. Look at what the world is doing. Look at what those people are doing. There's a time to stand up for justice. There's a time to stand up against uh, oppression. There's time to stand up to the evils of this world. But that should not be the lion's share of our energy. Why? Because our biggest problem is in here. In fact, the only way to help out there is to first do some business in here. Jesus told us this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, look at how Jesus kind of unpacks this dynamic. And look at the language he uses to quantify the problem. He says, hypocrites, first get rid of the log. Where's the bigger piece of wood? Here, right? Get the log out of your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck that's smaller in your friend's eye. As Christians, we should be people of confession first before complaint. I want you to imagine this for a moment. Just, just imagine Monday morning, tomorrow. You step into work. You go into work and, and you want to meet with your boss. So you come in a little bit early. And you get into her, your, her office and you see she hasn't started her first meeting. So you kind of just nudge the door open and you ask her, hey, can I just have a moment with you? And she's polite, she's kind. She can tell that you've come in just for this moment. She, she says, yeah, sure, come, come on in. And you say, you know what? I need to talk about last week's meeting because the way it ended, I just, I didn't like. And you look at her face, it's a little puzzled and you may think, wait, she may think that I didn't get my work done and I'm making an excuse. But you continue on, you say, yeah, I, I didn't like how I handled the end of the meeting. I felt like the way I spoke to you was disrespectful. And she brushes it off. Oh, don't worry about it. You know, this quarter has been so stressful. It's just kind of how we talk. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But you politely push back on that. You say, I understand that. You see, but as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I know I'm supposed to guard what I say. And I know I'm supposed to respect the leaders that are in front of me. And I didn't do that. 
I need to ask for your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Pause right there. In her mind, is your Christianity more or less compelling? I think it would be incredibly compelling. That posture would be incredibly compelling. You wouldn't just be the worker in the room who's always complaining about all the things that are going wrong, all the bad that's happening out there. Making your stance and making your appeal through bumper stickers, through coffee mugs, through these little cute, cliche Christian criticisms of the world, right? You want to be that person? You'd be the confession person. You'd be the humble person. You'd be the person who they would see, hey, I know the biggest problem is right here, and I've got to make it right with you. Can you imagine what the spiritual climate of your office would be if you had a moment like that? Can you imagine collectively? If everybody who heard this message, whether in this room or online, they had that kind of encounter on Monday morning. Can you imagine how the spiritual climate of Hillsborough would change if hundreds of conversations on Monday would happen like that in, at Intel? Can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine how that would just reframe people's understanding of the compelling nature of Christianity? Can you imagine what that would look like? And it's hard, but really, it's simple. I bet right now you can think of one person that you could find at your workplace, one person tomorrow you can have a conversation with and say, hey, I'm sorry. Imagine what that would do to them. Now, maybe here you're not a follower of Christ yet, right? You say, I'm, Paul, I'm just curious about Christianity. I came to church because, to be honest, the last couple years have been crazy. And so I'm just going to give church a shot. Let's just find out. Maybe this God thing works. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. You're in a great place to be curious. And I want to encourage you to see the hero. To see the hero that you so desperately need See, the Bible takes very serious our sin. It talks about it not just as us breaking God's rules, but sin breaks us. Every sin breaks us over and over and over again until that brokenness is so big we can't fix it. That dragon is so big we can't slay it. But there is a hero, a spirit-filled king that could conquer your heart who could free you from your sin and is eager to forgive. And my hope and my prayer is that you would come to trust in him. You see, because you don't need to pick up a sword. You don't need to pick up a shield. You don't need to get in the ring with that dragon because he will eat you alive. All you have to do is place your faith in that great warrior king, Jesus Christ who took on all the penalty of sin and shame, who took the hardest blow, not from the hand of Satan nor the hand of man, but the hand of God himself. Wrath on the Son. Wrath for our sin. Our sin. Penalty that he did not deserve, but we deserved. And he didn't stay on the mat. Even though the count got to nine, he got up before ten, and he offers you the gift not to say, go fight, but watch me fight. Watch me flex. 
You don't have a sin big enough, a burden big enough. You don't have a mountain too high. You don't have a sea too broad. There is nothing that is beyond the pale of God's grace and his conquering victory. If he can beat death, he can beat your addiction. If he can beat death, he can beat your shame. He can beat your guilt. You may have been beat up all of your life and maybe by yourself more than anybody else and you never feel like you'll ever get relief and you feel those claws around your neck. Friend, hear me. There is a dragon slayer out there and he is eager to conquer in here. And my prayer is that you find him today. My prayer is that you find him today. We're going to have prayer leaders here in, in the room at the end of the service. And my hope is that you would take the courageous steps to move forward from where you are and to speak to them. Because I'm telling you, following Jesus Christ, it's, it's not easy, but it's the greatest relief you'll ever experience. Because your greatest enemy will have been defeated. Church, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've conquered sin and death. Oh, Father, we thank you that you sent your son to come in and to slay the dragon. Oh, the relief we feel. Oh, the encouragement we feel. Father, we, we hear that very convicting message that we're not Batman. We're not Superman. We're not the hero of our story. We need rescue. And the one we need rescue from is ourself. Father, thank you for coming in. Thank you for sending your son. Christ, thank you for dying, for rising again. Spirit, thank you for bringing us to life. Father, I pray for those hundreds of conversations that happen tomorrow in the workplaces around this area. It's hard for me to, to contain my excitement about the conversations that could happen Monday morning where followers of Christ could just confess, hey, I, I misspoke. I'm sorry. I disrespected you. I'm sorry. I wasn't loving. I'm sorry. It's important for me to be loving, and I wasn't. Will you forgive me? Oh, how compelling the message can be if we can just find ourselves in a place of confession. I pray for all of those conversations. Maybe it's not at a workplace. Maybe it's in our families. Maybe that's where we need to start. God, do a great work in there. And for those, Father, that are in this room that are still, still a little far away from you, they haven't crossed that line yet in commitment to you, Christ. I pray today you'd give them courage. I pray today they would do the hard thing of looking inside and realizing in the mirror is their greatest enemy. In the mirror is the one that can give them infinite harm and infinite hurt. But Father, there is freedom for us. I pray, Father, they'd find it today. I pray they'd have the courage and the boldness to go up and just meet with somebody they don't even know, but say, hey, I heard that message and I want to start following Jesus today, or I got some questions. Well, Father, I know that would make the people here proud and would make you smile, and I pray, Father, that you give them that courage. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.